Good evening, everyone. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to introduce our storyteller for today. Uh, at our church, we do this thing called storytelling, and it's just our way of getting to know each other and feel connected to one another. It's part of the uh, belong, become engaged. That's the belong part of it. And today, we have Julia Gulia. Come on up and tell us a story. Good evening, everyone. Um, as Peter said, I'm Julia, Julia Congdon. Um, so I've been going to this church for over 10 years now. Um, I started through the youth group in middle school and um, then just started coming to services when I was able to drive myself. Um, and I've been serving in a lot of different ministries around the church lately um, since I've graduated college. So if you see me around doing weird things, that's kind of why. Um, so I, I believe a lot about um, in honesty and vulnerability. Um, <laughs> but I'm a little scared to tell the story today. Um, sorry. I am scared because this is probably the, one of the hardest things that's ever happened to me. And I'm scared because I don't want anyone to take this story the wrong way to, um, cause it's, it's about a mission uh, trip, the, um, and I don't want anyone to take that in a way that would make them scared to do anything like this. Um, and I'll explain anything, but if you have any questions about it, um, feel free to talk to me after. And um, But I think enough time has passed now that it's okay to talk about it. Um, so this is about the Mexico mission trip. <laughs> I am so sorry I did not anticipate crying this much. <laughs> so we, um, we went to a little town in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico called Popolnat. Um, I was, it was after my senior year in high school, so I was 18 at the time. Um, we stayed um, in this little town. So this is, um, I have a couple pictures to kind of get you the feel of where we were. Um, this is us, the team swimming in a cenote, which is um, an, a cave that has water in it, and you just go down and swim, and it's really amazing. <laughs> Um, this is where we had services. Um, that's the church that in the town of Popolna. Um, and we spent a lot of time out there. This is where we um, ate in this little outside covered area. Um, the dirt roads, it was really, really just a tiny little Mayan village. And there wasn't a lot around. Um, it's one of the locals, Ruby. She was um, wonderful. There were so many, so many wonderful people we met on this trip and really got to know. Um, these are some more of them. And the kids, um, which was mainly my job because I was too weak to build the church itself. It's uh, Scott Kuhn doing some, <laughs> some beautiful um, acting as we were working, and there's Katie Shy doing some too. This is um, the 
church in the town of Alamo, which was an even smaller village that the villagers were, were helping build a new church. And so this was our little base there. So this was the second to last night when we had a bonfire with all of the villagers. And uh, the teenagers invited us to go play soccer with them down the street. Um, and so it was really late, as you can kind of see, and there was um, just like a lot going on. And um, so this was us walking there. I know it's really, really dark and you kind of can't see, but this is kind of so that you understand where we were at. Um, so after this soccer playing and this wonderful night, and this wonderful trip. Uh, the girls, there were um, four girls stay, four of us in um, a little room, uh, three girls and our leader, Katie Scheid. And we were walking back to our room to, and started getting ready for bed. And um, we were in our room. We heard a faint knock at the door. We asked who was there, but there was no response. So we looked out the window and didn't see anyone and we closed it up and thought nothing of it. I climbed into my hammock, and another girl went into the bathroom to brush her teeth, and one went out to get something out of her bag by the back door. And Katie was continued looking for things in her bag by the front door to get ready for bed. And then we heard the knocking again, and no one answered our calls to who was there. We just assumed it was one of the villagers who just didn't understand English and we had forgotten something or whatever. And Katie opened the door just to crack to check what was going on. And that's when two men slammed the door open and marched into our room. They were yelling at us in Spanish, which none of us understood, and all we could do was scream. The next minute or so was really just a blur. I realized I was trapped in my hammock and I was completely helpless. But I just remember myself screaming. And all I could do was watch Katie and watch the men. But I, I, I thank God for Katie's shine. I watched her as she fought off one of the men, iPhone in hand, and kept them coming, from coming any further into the room. After the fact, we kind of, the girls, we all kind of pieced together our different vantage points to figure out what was happening. And what we figured out was um, when the men barged in, they were holding something in their hands that looked like weapons. Katie thinks that they were pocket knives that were unopened because she put this together while the knife, while the knife was on her throat. Since it was close, she went full force back at them. They were not there to take our stuff. When they came in, they didn't look at what we had. Katie had an iPhone in her hand, and they didn't even make a grab for it. One tried to grab a bag at the end, but just dropped it and ran instead. One of the girls was silent and hid in the bathroom because she didn't know what was going on. She was the youngest of us, and we're so glad she knew how to protect herself. The other girl ran out the back door and tried to get help from the neighbor, but she didn't know any Spanish. 
And the only word she could think of was hermanos, which means brother. And she yelled it at the neighbor multiple times until the confused neighbor ran back, uh, like followed her, ran in the back door, or armed with a broom as the men ran out the front door. The screaming attracted all of the villagers and they came to find out what happened. When they told us, when they were told they were heartbroken and didn't know what to do, the village boys all came by and told us that they were going to surround the building and sleep there to keep us safe. It was amazing the amount that they rallied around us, but we were still hurt. Sleeping that night seemed impossible and uh, Scott Coon came and he slept in front of the door to protect us. And we had Katie sing us the lullaby and she sang the song that we had been singing all trip, which was Oceans. And I still can't listen to that song. To most people, that story doesn't mean a lot because everyone's okay, nothing, no one was even hurt and nothing was taken. But for me, those 30 seconds or minute, they changed my life. And I didn't really realize it until the next day because we went ahead and went to Chichen Itza as we had planned and we had an amazing day. But it wasn't until we were swimming in a, another cenote that I really understood that I had been affected. Um, one of the boys who was on the trip with us um, came up behind me to scare me because I wasn't jumping in the water. And I just completely broke down. I just sobbed and sobbed and I couldn't breathe. It was the first time I had a real panic attack, but it was definitely not the last. So for that, we ended up cutting the trip short and leaving the town and getting a hotel. And the next day I, couldn't leave. I locked myself in the room and just stayed and I think I just cried all day. I went to college the next week and I moved down to LA, which was a terrible idea. I panicked every time I heard a knock on the door or a loud sound. I got panic attacks when the song Ocean played which was constantly at a Christian school. And I, I just, I, I constantly deal with this feeling of helplessness. We slept in hammocks and being stuck in that hammock like was just debilitating. Like I couldn't do anything and I felt so useless and I still feel really useless and helpless. And logically, I know that, that if I had done something, it would have made everything worse. But that doesn't stop the feeling. And, and it's just something I still have to deal with constantly, even though I have gone through tremendous amounts of therapy, it's still not gone. And what I realize while I was preparing to speak today, that I don't actually talk about this as much as I think I do. I realized that whenever I tell someone, whenever someone knows about it, 
I just kind of say, oh yeah, well, when we were in Mexico, we were attacked, and I just brush over it and start laughing as kind of a defense mechanism. And I just assume that everyone knows. But it's a really big part of my life, and it's really changed the way I've seen a lot of things. And even though this happened, I would go on that trip a thousand more times with everything exactly the way it was. And that's the most important thing I think I want everyone to take away is that it's not, it wouldn't change a thing. Um, thank you for letting me share my story with you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can we, can we pray for you real quick? Father God, uh, we lift up our daughter to you here, Julia, and that um, you would just surround her and that you would, um, you would, you would give her that ability to, to, um, to know that she's not useless and that um, you're going to use her in great ways in this world, Father. Thank you for her courage in sharing this story with us. Um, and we just thank you so much for Julia in your name. Amen. Um, so our scripture reading for today is from the book of Malachi. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading the selected verses from Malachi chapter 3 and 4 in the New American Standard Bible. Behold, I sent my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of who, those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The word of the Lord. Good evening again. My name is Peter, one of the pastors here at the church. And I want to thank you for joining us here tonight, and thank you for being in the space where we get to share our lives together and, um, and sort of walk and journey uh, through all of it. Uh, we want to finish our series today in the book of Malachi, which we call The Heart, and the title of today's sermon is The Cry of the Criminal. The two points that we'll talk about today is first, depraved, and then second, deprived. 
in Jonah, which was a book that we studied a couple of series ago, we touched upon this theme of violence. And one of the things we mentioned was this research that uh, shows that uh, there's lots of theories for why violence happens, and uh, some of the best research shows that really underneath it all, uh, we have this longing for a kind of justice. There is a desire for meaning and order and even a kind of personal righteousness that lives underneath uh, some of the violence that we see in our midst and in our world. And that was a fascinating way to think about violence for me. And the book of Jonah uh, definitely touches upon this topic as um, Jonah engaged the people group that were very much a violent group. And this series, uh, I was surprised to study this word that we find in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. The verse says, Will a man rob God? Yet... You are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And when I read this and I studied this word, it was kind of startling to me because God is uh, asking this question rhetorically to not criminals, but to his people, people who worship him. And it would be like all of us coming to church. And uh, imagine God himself accusing you of being robbers. And this word is actually a word that is criminal. It means a criminal. It means really a thief, somebody who is violating the law, somebody who is doing injustice. And uh, it's really an interesting label for worshipers. So there is sort of a shock and awe effect that it has on me. Uh, and uh, uh, what do you make of this? that God would accuse his people of being criminals. The very people who are bringing him sacrifice, who are singing songs to him, whose hearts belong to him, he calls them criminals. And it reminded me of the idea that we studied in the book of Jonah on violence, that criminals are not just people who are depraved, but they are also people who are trying to, underneath it all, trying to mitigate loss. They're trying to meet needs. They're acting in their own way redemptively and seeking a kind of restoration for themselves. And uh, so I got curious and I started uh, researching this idea of the criminal mind a bit. And the research also shows that criminals believe not that they're criminals, but people who steal, for example, believe that they deserve the thing they are stealing. They don't believe that they're taking it unjustly. They believe they are committing a just act as a way to right the wrongs in their life because things are unfair, because they are due, and it's time to collect. And it raises the question, is the criminal a perpetrator or is the criminal also a victim? Another author that I've been uh, curious about and interested in is this woman that I quoted a couple of weeks ago. Her name is Kate Bowler. She's an assistant professor at Duke Divinity School, and she's probably uh, a person who has researched more than anybody else this prosperity gospel that our uh, religion has been connected to for a number of years. And she says this in one article. 
There's a branch of Christianity that promises a direct path to the good life. It is called by many names, but most often it is nicknamed the prosperity gospel for its bold central claim that God will give you your heart's desires, money in the bank, a healthy body, a thriving family, and boundless happiness. The prosperity gospel is a theodicy, an explanation for the problem of evil. The prosperity gospel looks at the world as it is and promises a solution. What gives the prosperity movement breath and depth for many of its thorough accounting of the pain of life and the longing we have for restoration. If life is a game, one with rules for success that anyone can use, then maybe they can win. It is hard to give up the hope for, perpet for perpetual worldly betterment. We remembered Billy Graham today, and one of the things that I admire about Billy Graham so much, and as many of you do, is his integrity. He was able to preach the gospel without exploiting the gospel for his own personal gain. Now, I understand that preachers don't have the greatest reputation in the world. And some of you can name specific preachers who have been on TV or who have been famous or even lesser famous ones that you've known in your life who have used the gospel for their own personal gain. And we admire that about Billy Graham. He drew a line and he never crossed it. He is somebody who was in a position of power and authority and yet he chose to remain steadfastly focused on preaching the gospel and not gaining from the gospel. He maintained his integrity. The pro prosperity gospel exists because the leaders of this movement, not only are they depraved at times in the way they use the gospel, but in their heart, they also feel deprived. They feel that they deserve the gain and they have the right to use whatever means to gain whatever they feel they are owed. In other words, there's a really fine line between those who are depraved and those who are deprived. And it shows up everywhere, including in, including in the lives of people who preach the gospel. This is really a fascinating angle on crime for me. Because when I look around, my tendency is to want to label people, label persons, label categories, label people groups. And if I can label them criminal, then I don't have to deal with them. I can distance myself from them, and they are not what I am. But if I am honest, I think it's a pretty fine line between people who are depraved and people who are deprived. What really is a criminal? Why do people commit crimes? Here is a definition of sin uh, that I've loved over the years, and I've shared this with you many times. Sin represents illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. So people who feel deprived will often find illegitimate ways to meet their needs, including committing crimes. And so I may not label myself a criminal per se, 
but I know that I have the ability to commit crimes if my needs aren't met and I become desperate enough. And this is what chapter 3 and chapter 4 show us, that those who label themselves worshipers are capable of committing crimes, even stealing from God himself, as uh, chapter 3 puts it, if they feel their needs are not being met. These human words that we use to label ourselves and label others don't do justice to the reality within. That it is possible in the same person to both be a perpetrator and a victim. That for me, I can feel like a victim and as a way to mitigate the loss that I feel, I can perpetrate. I can reach out and grasp at whatever is the easiest way to begin to shore up my needs. And this is the reality of the world that we live in. This is the reality of human nature. That not, not only do we worship God, not only do we call out to God in times of trouble, but we also have the capacity to take matters into our own hands that the human heart is incredibly self-deceived and capable of a breath of atrocities, if we must. Uh, I came across a psychiatrist this week, uh, Lacan, and he was born in 1901, psychologist and a kind of mathematician. He loved math, and he's the one who created what's now known as the mirror test. You know, you look in the mirror, and he asked the question, at what age do we recognize the person in the mirror as the self? And he said the first moment that we recognize ourself in the mirror as the self that's looking at the image in the mirror is a shocking moment. Because internally, we don't feel confined by the physical body that we see reflected back to us in the mirror. That physical body we see represents limitations, and it's a kind of label that we fight for the rest of our lives, he says. Inside, we don't age, and yet when we look at our reflections, we're aging. Inside, there's nothing that tells us that we have dark hair or light hair, and yet we look at the image, and we are confined to a certain hair color. You know, inside, we're not tall, we're not short, and yet there we are, male or female, in the mirror. And he says, for the rest of our lives, we ask the question, what are we? What's the proper label? How do you label the eternity that's on the inside? I don't like the label perpetrator. I don't like the label victim. I don't like the label criminal. I don't like the label saint. What am I? Who am I? That's the question that we spend asking for the rest of our lives. But here's what scripture says. Within the same person, we are both depraved and deprived. We are both victim and perpetrator. You look in the mirror, what do you see? Who do you see? This 
whole chapter is very interesting to me. There's seemingly a random juxtaposition of concepts and verses. Uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So chapter 3 opens with this promise that God's Messiah is coming. And then God flips and accuses his people of being criminals. Why the juxtaposition? I think it's God promising me, both perpetrator and victim, that I won't always be stuck in this conundrum, that he will send help, that somehow he will figure things out for me, I won't be in eternal torment. You know, the Bible talks about human depravity, that there is no one good, no, not one, uh, as the New Testament puts it. Depravity doesn't mean that 100% of me is bad, but it does mean that 100% of me is tainted. There is both good and bad in me. I'm all mixed up on the inside. Who will save me, Paul asks, from this body of death? Chapter 3, verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction, and this is, this is really where um, I've, I received direction for how to think about this chapter. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Who is the perpetrator? Who is the victim? Verse 18 says, only God knows. Only God knows how to help me, how to discern what's really going on, what's underneath it all, and how to help, how to seek and find the lost. And at the core of it, it's not some program, it's not some external behavior modification, but it's heart change, as we talked about, the heart. Chapter 3, verse 16, Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. And God says the solution is not to change my behavior from the outside in only, but it's really to help instill, instill in me a fear of God from the inside. Chapter 4, verse 6, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. God's promise, the way he is going to save us is to change our hearts from the inside because really the problem is not on the outside. That's just, those are just symptoms, but the problem is on the inside. My connection to this theme is that I have this uh, way of oscillating back and forth in my own personal narrative to myself. I am always either the hero or the victim in my own stories. You know, uh, I would guess that you are also the hero or the victim of your own stories. Somebody's always doing something to me or I'm always helping to save somebody else but it's never really quite my fault. 
as I thought about this week, I realized that I'm really uh, seeing how thin the line is getting between victim and perpetrator for me. It's easy for me to feel hurt, and what happens next is I hurt other people. So I feel critical about myself, and so I turn and I criticize the people right near me. If I don't do it verbally, externally, I do it in my own head. I slap labels on them. You are a criminal. You are a criminal, and you're a criminal. Or you're a victim. You're a victim, and I can be your hero. This is the way I tend to tell stories to myself. Victim or hero. And I want to be saved from this way of thinking. I want God to help discern my heart. I want his help to change my heart. I'm tired of living as the victim or the hero. But really, I can often be the perpetrator as well. Where does salvation come from? Where does help come from? And we have chapter 4, verse 5. And this is the way the book ends. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Who is Elijah? He was a prophet, but who is Elijah now? We know that Elijah was not just the specific name of a person. He wasn't just a prophet, but he was categorically, uh, he stood for the prophet, that is the Christ, that is Jesus Christ, whom we worship as a church. What was Jesus? When Jesus looked in the mirror, what did he see? Was he a victim? Was he a perpetrator? Was he a hero? He was all those things. He who knew no sin became the perpetrator. He who committed no sin became sinner. He who had done nothing wrong became the victim. He who had no power became all-powerful and mighty to save. He took on all those mistaken identities and right identities. He took on all good and all bad. He took all our mess, and he died for us. He saved us. He removed the shame. He removed the label from us. He removed not just the label, but he removed the game we have to play to label each other. We don't have to ask, is this person a criminal? Is this person a victim? It doesn't matter. He's saving us from these ways of thinking altogether. We don't have to label each other anymore. I don't have to label you. You don't have to label me. It doesn't matter. We don't play that game anymore. And that is the good news. He's not saying, I'm going to make it clear that these group of people are bad, or if you do these things, then you are unredeemable. That's not what salvation is. If that was the case, then I can't be saved. You can't be saved because we are both victim and perpetrator in the same person at the same time. And so Paul says, who will save me from this body of death? Who will save me from this body of contradiction? You look in the mirror and you ask, who am I? What am I? And the answer is, I am loved. 
I am a daughter of God. I am a son of God. I don't have to play this game anymore. So what is the cry of the criminal? It's Christ. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, it's our confession this evening that we live in a messy, messy world. And when we try to clean up the mess, we end up hurting each other because hurt people hurt people. But you promise salvation for us. And so we pray, God, save us in Christ. Amen.